Welcome to Lyme Time. I'm Allie from the Tick Chicks. We are all more than Lyme disease and chronic illness, and together we stand with you to overcome and rise. I'll bring you closer to the experts in cutting edge treatments and even a few unexpected ways of healing. I'll ask the questions you want answers to regarding Lyme disease and successful ways of getting you closer to 100%. We are in this together and will not be defined by Lyme. Today, I'm so excited to have not one, but two very special guests, the authors of the new book called Chronic. So I have, first of all, Dr. Stephen Phillips, and he is a world-renowned Yale-trained physician, researcher, and international lecturer. A media go-to expert, he specializes in the management of complex vector-borne infections. He is also the co-author of Chronic, The Hidden Cause of the Autoimmune Pandemic and How to Get Healthy Again. He's in private practice in Wilton, Connecticut. And also joining us is Dana Parrish. Dana is an award-winning Sony ATV singer-songwriter who has collaborated with Celine Dion, Michael Jackson, and Nick Jonas. She has become a powerful voice for change in the field of Lyme disease. She is the co-author of Chronic, The Hidden Cause of the Autoimmune Pandemic and How to Get Healthy Again, uh, same book, and she lives in New York City. So welcome to both of you. Thank you. Good to be here. Thank you. I've been seeing so much of you lately um, on everything from my local news here in Los Angeles to the powerful and almighty uh, Dr. Oz. And so um, it's just so great to have you here in person um, discussing your book, Chronic. And even though it's, it's something that, you know, I wish people didn't have to write books like this, um, continuing to enlighten and expose the public, whereas we would normally be heading to our experts, um, you know, in our, in our own physicians for that, but I'm glad you did. And I'm glad that you have, um, you know, come forward and, and are discussing such important topics in your book. Um, so it's, it's, got a lot of hot topics involved in here, and I'm just going to kind of go down the list, and I know what uh, typically our listeners want to talk about, so, um, you know, I'm excited to talk about it right now. Um, what, since you've been out and about in doing publicity, what types of questions do you find that are either surprising to you. Uh, I will talk to you, Dr. Phillips, first. And uh, what topics do you think that most people want to know about? Thank you. Uh, one of the best questions that I was asked is kind of like, why now? Because these infections have been around forever. And in the last 30 or 40 years, there's been this precipitous rise of chronic and autoimmune illness. So in the book, we focus mainly on the the infection side of the equation, but there are other aspects to this equation too. And maybe that's a topic for our next book, but we live in an ever increasing kind of toxic society and we do eat kind of not great food a lot and we don't breathe great air and, and you know, drink such great water. And, um, and there are many contaminations and various medications that come out all the time. It's just rifampin is now, you know, they found a contaminant in rifampin, a carcinogen. So there are many, many, I think, roads that lead to chronic and autoimmune illness and infection is one of the main ones. And that's why we focus on that in the book. But someone did ask me that question, like, why now? And I thought that was the greatest question. 
It really is. It seems like there's new and important information constantly. Um, Dana, what about you? What what kinds of topics do you feel that people are uh, hungry to, to learn about in the Lyme community? Well, it's not so much um, to me that it's been that we've been able to get to a much broader audience, which the Lyme community is so educated already. It shocks me. Some of the brilliant questions they ask, they stump me regularly. I have to constantly call or email uh, Dr. Phillips and ask him like, what is the answer to this question? Um, I think the most important thing to me has been what are the autoimmune and psychiatric diseases or symptoms that are linked to infections. Um, because I think the broader world needs to understand that fibromyalgia, MS, rheumatoid arthritis, anxiety, depression, the list goes on, psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis. These are conditions that millions and millions of people have. You know, when we first started writing the book before COVID, there were 50 million Americans with chronic and autoimmune disease already. Now we're faced with long haul illness from COVID so I think the most important thing, the message that I can share with people is to understand that infections are driving a good amount of this. And because doctors aren't educated about it, they're not looking for it. And they're just going to keep you on drugs to treat your symptoms forever. Yeah, that's I, not a good practice in my opinion. I often think sometimes that the Lyme disease is an infection, but it acts as though it's a virus. So in other words, you know, typically when you go in for an infection diagnosis, it's very easy. It's easy to spot. It's localized. It's, it's obvious. Um, but with Lyme disease, I feel, find that it just continues to migrate and morph. And at least that's been my experience with it. So I think you're right. I think, I think people, when you're talking about neurological symptoms um, and arthritic symptoms, they're not necessarily always looking for an infection in the first place. They're never looking for an infection. Ne I mean, never. It's almost well never. The inflammatory stuff that happens with some viral infections overlaps with what happens with Lyme and other slow-growing bacteria. When you think of bacteria, you can really classify them into the, the old, really slow-growing bacteria that doctors really don't understand, like Lyme and Bartonella and Brucella and the bacteria that causes Whipple's disease. And even tuberculosis and leprosy are weird ones too, mm -hmm. in their own way. And then the rapidly kind of a growing bacteria that everyone understands, like the ones that cause strep throat and pneumonia. And they're really, really different. And the ones that are slow growing, when they cause meningitis, for example, they call it aseptic meningitis. And when a virus causes aseptic, when a virus causes meningitis, it's also aseptic meningitis. So you're kind of right. They're really different. They're not viruses, but they present with this kind of like more subtle inflammation than regular bacteria do. And regular bacteria are easier to spot. And that's why they call these types of bacteria fastidious bacteria, because they are so hard to find and hard to culture. And they're very, very sneaky. And really doctors don't understand them at all. Boy, and by the time you catch them, they can have caused so many more problems um, than if you would have found it in the beginning. Um, I'd like to talk to talk about something that so many people are interested in, and it's the possibility of Lyme disease being sexually transmitted. And there are currently, uh, at least in, in my 
layman's terms. I've been researching it and there are some conflicting reports out there. Um, Dr. Phillips, what do you see in your research regarding it being sexually transmitted? Look, I think the evidence for both sexual and maternal fetal transmission is, is uh, you know, it's disturbing. It's there. You know, not to deny it is, is silly. I don't know how often it, it occurs. You know, I'm not saying it's contagious of syphilis or anything like this, but if they're finding, you know, both, both bits of the DNA and actual spirochetes in vaginal secretions and, and semen, and if animal studies demonstrate that it can be transmitted in this way, or at least suggestive, then I think that it should be taken seriously. But this is a taboo topic. I mean, very few people are studying it. So how do you find something that you're not looking for? I think like so many things, um, it's being just swept under the rug. You know, maternal fetal transmission is a perfect example. There's so many other infections of the group that, you know, we call them Lyme Plus in the book, but there are other infections outside of that group. And so many of them are have less evidence behind them to be transmitted from mother to child than Lyme does. And yet Lyme is the one that's actively, you know, denied, suppressed, whatever. I, it's, it's, it's mind-boggling that all the other spirochetes, they agree, get transmitted. Even leptospirosis and relapsing fever, obviously syphilis, but, but not Lyme bacteria. Mm-hmm. And even babesiosis, which is not as invasive as, let's say, spirochetes or Bartonella. And Bartonella, they accept transmits to the mother to child. Brucellosis is accepted. They're all accepted except for Lyme. It's a very, very bizarre situation. That's clearly um, not rooted in science. And is it the kind of thing where if a woman is pregnant, she could pass it along, I guess, potentially then to her unborn child, but could she also pass it along if she happens to get it while she is pregnant? If a woman gets Lyme acutely during pregnancy, uh, most everybody agrees that that is a situation that can be very serious. And it can be serious even to pass it on when they've had Lyme for some time, but acute Lyme during pregnancy untreated is associated with a higher rate of poor outcomes even fetal death. So, you know, those women need to be treated. And um, in, in patients who have had Lyme for a long time and become pregnant, uh, I offer them treatment through the pregnancy. What I've noticed in my patients who have elected to go through and have treatment during the pregnancy is they don't get this postpartum flare of symptoms. Pregnancy is an immune suppressed state. And that's why sometimes pregnant ladies come down with a lot of, you mm. know, infections that are very dangerous for them, like toxoplasmosis, whereas it would be less dangerous when people aren't pregnant. And when the immune system spools back up around the time of the birth, the symptoms of Lyme come rushing back. And I think a lot of these peripartum kind of issues that people get, like preeclampsia and postpartum depression may in fact be related to some of these occult infections and their symptoms getting worse as the immune system revs back up toward normal. I see. Wow. It sounds like a complicated area that needs to be developed even more in terms of research. And I hope that more and more people will be involved in studies. Um, there are several studies out right now, and I think it's important because I've, I've seen many families affected by Lyme. Now, whether or not the kids came in with it laying dormant or not, um, and then had some, some event that triggered it is a possibility. And Dana, I don't know um, if you, what, at what stage of your life did you develop Lyme disease? Um, well, I want to actually tell you that you're on to something. Like when, I think that one thing that's important to say, I'm, Dr. Phillips and I extensively 
researched maternal fetal transmission and we interviewed um, probably the top expert in the world, um, Sue Faber from Canada, who's a nurse and has a fabulous website about it called limehope.ca for Canada. Um, I think it's very interesting that so many kids develop uh, neurologic behavioral issues, arthritic issues, really little kids, lots of growing pains. And I've talked to other people, other physicians and stuff about this who treat children who are super brilliant but never see a tick bite. You know, you're gonna see a tick bite most likely on your one-year-old or your six-month-old or your two-year-old. You know, you're still giving them a bath and checking them. And there's no reason that this is happening in, in, in my um, experience in interviewing these people and learning so much about this. I think a lot of it is actually a delayed reaction. So the kids are born with Lyme or Lyme plus as we like to call it. And then they go on to have symptoms, you know, two or three years in. Um, I think that's a really important thing to point out because so few people see tick bites and they're so confused and they're always telling me, well, I don't have Lyme. I never saw a bite. Well, I got news for you, babe. You're not going to see a bite most of the time. Mm -hmm. I was lucky. It was on my shoulder. So I did see the bite. Um, but in terms of my experience, I mean, I got the bite that, that rocked my world and changed my life, um, which is what brought me to Dr. Phillips in 2014. Uh, that sent me into heart failure and fibromyalgia and severe neuropsych issues, all of which went away under his care, but which 12 new, top New York City doctors failed to help me with at all, or even recognize anything beyond the acute infection and the rash and three weeks of antibiotics, which failed for me within five days of the bite. So another big piece of misinformation in this whole landscape is that early treatment uh, cures you not the case in many, many, many cases, depending on the data that you look at up to 61%. So, um, but I do think before I met him, uh, I had symptoms since I was a little girl. I grew up in New Jersey, always playing in the woods, always playing under the trees and bushes and stuff. I actually have a memory of pulling a tick out of my thigh too when I was a little kid. I didn't even tell my mom because I didn't know what it was. Um, I had severe bladder pain and interstitial cystitis when I was little. And I was the kid that was out 30 days a year, every year with colds and flus and chronic strep. And I had to have my tonsils and adenoids out when I was a little kid. So I was that kid that had all those things. My bladder pain was so debilitating from the time I was five years old that I was constantly, constantly in doctor's offices and having painful procedures. When, he, when Dr. Phillips treated me, my life of bladder pain also went away. And he can talk to you a little bit more about interstitial cystitis being related to Lyme and other infections, but it blew my mind that oh I my gosh. my whole life with this thing that I didn't have to suffer with. It's enraging really, but it's also very hopeful because a lot of women have it. I think it's more women than men. So I, I say that because of that reason, but I hear from tons of them and, uh, you know, the fascinating thing was it didn't take that long. You know, I suffered for, for decades and yet he treated me for, you know, less than a year or, or around a year. And I haven't had any problems since with my bladder. So Dana touches on a couple of really interesting points. Number one, I want to just compare it to syphilis because a lot of babies that have syphilis look healthy when they're born and they develop, you know, they have developmental delays and things like this. They get stuff later on. But um, I think that these infections are kind of like, 
uh, it's like peeling the onion, you know, everyone always says that because there's so many layers and you have to think how many infections do we all get just as part of regular life that don't make us overly sick or they make us so sick in a specific way like interstitial cystitis or another way. But I can tell you that I've treated, you know, 20,000 patients at this point. I have seen it over and over again, like over a thousand times where patients have a chronic health condition and let's say six months of what they're thinking is a vector borne thing like Lyme. I treat them for acute situation and they're decades long other chronic health condition resolves. And I've seen it with things like migraine, IBS, interstitial cystitis, and many others. I mean, I remember a guy came in, he said he was kept putting off the surgery on his knee, kept putting off the surgery on his knee. The doctors wanted to do surgery on his knee. And then for years he had knee problems and I treated him for his Lyme and his knee problems from years ago went away. And you know, this happens, I think, frequently. Not, it's not, it's not uncommon. Certainly, and I, I know you go in in your book. You go into um, diagnoses such as Alzheimer's and dementia and Parkinson's, and you know, you really what's what I love about your book is that it's easy to read. Number one, and number two, that it just it really goes in depth into all of these mysterious diseases that seem to come out of nowhere, like ALS, they can't find a genetic, really, you know, hardcore genetic component to it. Um, and, and I love the way that you, you kind of dip into each of these, because I do think, you know, you mentioned MS, uh, you must mention autism with children. I mean, and children are 25% of our diagnosed population with Lyme disease. And I think it's important to talk about the fact that they're often misdiagnosed with depression, anxiety, and neurological issues and without getting to the root of those. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'm really, I, I can't t- t- tell our, my listeners out there enough how each chapter of this book um, is something new and it's, it's, it's cutting edge, you guys. And it's, it's just really, it's amazing to um, read and to just take into consideration how much Lyme disease can actually be affecting each and every one of us. Um, I, my listeners uh, also know that I had the diagnosis of Lyme disease and I reached remission and then only to have been bitten by another tick which thankfully was not carrying the Lyme disease uh, bacteria, quote unquote, but I still began exhibiting symptoms within 24 hours of the second bite. And it was the nymph Lone Star tick and my symptoms lasted nearly six months. And, you know, just, it was one of those hiccups and I, I knew what to do. I knew what to expect and I knew what to look for. Um, thank God I got on it quickly enough um, because it still took me six months to get it out of my system. Um, Dr. Phillips, can you talk with us about what you're finding regarding co-infections or other bacteria strains being as serious or even more serious than Borrelia? For sure. Um, so in specific regard to your, your tick bite and other people's tick bites, you know, there, there's data that people who have tick bites that test negative can still come down with Lyme. It really depends on how the, the, the ticks are being tested. If it's tested by PCR, PCR is great and it's not great. It's really, really specific. And there's a lot of strain differences of this bacteria. And if you have a strain difference that's, you know, that it's just the PCR is not picking up, you're kind of out of luck. And there are many Lyme-like bacteria that produce clinical Lyme disease that aren't truly genetically Lyme bacteria that will be missed by the PCR. 
So with the Lone Star tick, obviously Borrelia Lone Star is, is one of them, and that's going to be missed when they look for just Lyme disease. And for, I mean, I think Bartonella is, you know, when it's bad, it's, it's harder than, than Lyme in many patients. My, I have a, we all have a personal story, you know, I'm a patient too. And, um, and very similar to Dana's story, how it is layers. Um, I had, uh, my first case of known Lyme came on in, uh, medical school and, and then it was a mystery and I made the, my own diagnosis, believe it or not. I, I, um, I went to the doctor and I said, I have Lyme disease. And he laughed in my face and my Lyme test was positive. My, all my Lyme tests were floridly positive. And I got sent all over to all the you know university places. And they said, you'll be fine. Take three weeks of doxy. And I did, and I did, and I did. And it kept coming back. And in fact, his doctor treated me with IV and it kept coming back. And it wasn't ever disabling. It wasn't ever horrible, believe it or not. But it was stubborn and it did impact mm-hmm. my life. But I could run five miles with Lyme and I could work all day with Lyme and I could play tennis all day. You know, it didn't stop me. And then I was sleeping in my bed and I got spider bites, which nobody thinks anything of, you know, it's just a spider bite. It's not a tick. And within a couple months of spider bites, my body exploded all over with arthritis. Within six months of that, I couldn't walk literally at all. And I ended up being uh, unable to walk for two years. I got arthritis everywhere. I went to 25 doctors and my diagnoses from the rheumatologists were rheumatoid arthritis and spondylitis, which is a type of arthritis of the spine. And they want to give me immune suppressants and all these things. And it's a long story. Obviously, we all have long stories, but it it got, you know, I, I figured it out and I got myself better. I'm like 99% better now. But the interesting thing is that when I got treated for my initial bout of Lyme, when I was 19, I was a healthy kid. I didn't really have any problems except the occasional heart palpitation. They brought me to doctors and didn't find anything. I was 19, they brought me to a doctor. And this started when I was five years old. I remember going to a pediatrician for heart palpitations. When I was 19, the doctor's like, wow, your heart valve was like falling apart. He's like, don't worry. <laughs> you're not going to need heart <laughs> surgery until you're probably 50. Um, but your heart valve is really, we don't see this in 19 year olds. And I was like, great, that's amazing. So then I got Lyme a few years later. And as I got treatment for the Lyme, I went for echoes every year for my really damaged heart valve. And every year with the treatments for Lyme, the valve just healed. It just got better and better and better and better. Ah. Now I'm 55, I have no damage to my heart valve. I never need a, you know, surgery. And it just go. And I was a healthy person when I was a kid. I mean, I was really, really healthy when I was a kid. I was in sports and did well in school. And you have to wonder how many people are walking around with these insidious infections that don't know they have them, and that they're causing some chronic illness, similar to Dana's interstitial cystitis. I can't even say it. Interstitial cystitis. That's what we say. I see. And similar to my heart valve problem. Well, because you have to suffer. Interstitial cystitis is. And a bacteria that's deeply embedded in the intestines, is that correct? Or in the bladder? It's a bladder wall inflammation. Bladder. They, they, I mean, they tip, with regular routine, you know, bladder cultures, they can't uh, detect anything. There are some IC kind of experts to do these broth cultures where they can sometimes find, you know, uh, versions of routine bacteria, mm-hmm. like things like E. coli even, uh, that they can't find otherwise. And I'm not sure if that's really it or if this is like a Lyme thing, because there's a type of collagen in the bladder that Sparakeet Borrelia just loves it. If you want to find Lyme in the in an animal, when you cut them up, there's really three places to go. It's the bladder wall, the root of the aorta, and believe it or not, the base of the ear. It's something with the collagen there that they just love. Wow, that's fascinating. It really is. And I've noticed in my own life that I've had since Lyme, I've been becoming increasingly 
reactive to spider bites. Um, and, and so it, I never was as a kid, but as an adult, you know, they get, I could have a simple spider bite and it gets, you know, kind of gets like pussy and infected like, and it's painful. And I'm like, wait a minute, this was just a spider bite. So I guess it's just that, that domino effect that, that keeps on going, but I'm hoping that can be reversed. Yeah, I think these are multi-hit processes for spider bites. People should know that, I mean, wolf spiders, you know, bite you in the middle of the night sometimes. And if you move the head of the bed away, this is like pretty gross and gnarly, but if you move <laughs> the head, uh, head of the bed away, like the headboard away from the wall six inches, then they really can't get you so easily because they, they climb up to the ceiling and then they, they climb down and they, they hunt by vision. That's yeah. Gross, I know. <laughs> but, but, you know, it could save somebody from a spider bite. And look, a spider bite took me out and... Um, if I if some if somebody was on a podcast somewhere <laughs> and told me move the head of the bed away by six inches and that's all it took to prevent two years of abject suffering, believe me, I would have done it. Thank you for sharing that. What's that? I said Steve's bed's in the middle of his room now. Yes, right, <laughs> wrapped up in bubble wrap. Oh I'm man, I know it's really with permethrin of your bed because I feel like anything we can do to get them from climbing up. Yeah, well, actually, no, I spent I spent a ton of money spider proofing this house. I got completely insulation everywhere and uh, got a completely new roof and patched all the holes. I went around with a guy with foam and put, you know, just to keep any. So I never see spiders really almost never, you know, yeah. hermetically sealed. I, I, I often see one or two out if I'm at the lake. And I'm sitting outside. That's what, you know, usually a lot of times spiders are very, very tiny. They're baby spiders, you know, and you don't really see those either. Um, Dana, tell me about if you're in remission now and if, or if anything still triggers you these days. Sure. Um, yes, I've been in remission about five years, right? I mean, so when did we meet? 2015? Yeah, and uh, so we're six years out and um, happy anniversary, Stephen. And anniversary. I've been better for five. I've been, I mean, really, I was better in, in less than a year, but I would say for me to really feel back to myself, but actually better than myself because of the bladder pain, um, also going into remission. But I do treat when I get limey. I mean, I will not hesitate to take a week or two of oil of oregano or tetracycline or both. I've never had any problems. I, you know, we don't have to get into a big discussion about antibiotics. And uh, Dr. Phillips uses a wide range, a broad range of things to treat these infections. But, you know, there's a lot of misinformation across the board about uh, these big, bad, scary antibiotics. Well, you keep kids on them for six years if they have acne. So, you know, so, and nobody bats an eye when, it, when a 14-year-old's on doxycycline their whole high school life. And then I, I want to take more than three weeks from my brain infection and all hell breaks. <laughs> so I, I think it's absolutely important to say that too. You know, don't be afraid if you're under the care of a good doctor, take a great probiotic. Uh, don't listen to the hype. Actually look at where the antibiotic resistance is coming from. The agriculture industry is responsible for 80% of antibiotics being put out into the world. And most people that get um, a C. diff and stuff are hospitalized and they are not being treated by Lyme doctors that are overzealous with antibiotics. That's just absolutely not true. So we also interviewed people about that for the book who are real experts like Amy Kroll, um, who's a brilliant microbiologist. She's a PhD. 
and we got some clarification on all these uh, things that are just simply not true. Yes, I love the way you go into each type of, of, of treatment and, and kind of brings up the next topic, which uh, Dr. Phillips, I wanted to pick your brain about um, the MTHFR gene. Sure. Um, you know, a lot of people out there don't know what it is. They don't know if they should be testing for it if they have Lyme disease. And they even I don't even understand how important a factor it is with Lyme disease. How much right. importance should we put on it? Right. So it's one. It's basically two genes that can mutate, and they're very common in the population. Uh, I think it's like one out of four people have it. I have a, one of the genes mutated. I think I have one of each actually. And my homocysteine is elevated. So some people with these gene mutations can have high homocysteine. Homocysteine is a chemical that everybody has, and you can think of it as kind of like cholesterol, but different. Like cholesterol clogs the tubes, but homocysteine kind of rots the pipes or rusts the pipes. And it's associated with higher rates of heart attacks and strokes and vascular dementia and certain cancers. Like there's a lot of reason we don't like high homocysteine. And they haven't done uh, great studies, like long-term, well-funded, like big pharma studies on homocysteine lowering to see how it affects health outcomes. But they've done some. And the studies show that lowering homocysteine has been associated with lower incidence of vascular disease in terms of strokes. Some subtypes of heart attacks, but not quite heart attacks. Some, some subtypes of coronary disease. And there's also a body of literature that's related to psychiatric illness. So I test for homocysteine routinely. I don't test for MTHFR routinely because I'm not sure what to do when patients have these gene mutations because they're so, so common, you know, one out of four. And it's called partial penetrance. When someone has a mutation, some people will get the high homocysteine and other people have the exact same mutation and won't get the high homocysteine. Why that happens, I'm not sure maybe other genetic components. But uh, when people have high homocysteine, we do recommend these uh, B vitamins like methylcobalamin and methylfolate. And sometimes others are necessary like B6 um, to get the homocysteine down. And I'm an internist. And when we had to just get the last uh, internal medicine boards, they poo-poo homocysteine on the boards. And I had to answer the question, what I thought was incorrectly, just to pass, you know, to pass that to get that question right according to them, and they're basically encouraging us not to discuss it. There's nothing, and don't talk about homocysteine. But we talk about it in the book, and we talk about MTHFR. And I, I was telling you before our broadcast, you know, the patients with psychiatric illness doesn't make a difference to lower the homocysteine. I've seen a number of patients where it made a significant difference, and I saw one patient where I absolutely changed her life. And how many does it take? Like, how many people do you have to save to offer them? you know, safe B vitamins, you know, one for me is enough. So this is a patient who, when she was a girl, uh, she started, I think eight years old, started being suicidal and she was in and out of psych hospitals for many, many years. And I gave her methylcobalamin and methylfolate and it worked better than any antidepressant she ever took. And I was blown away and I was happy to help her. And, um, and it was just like a tool, you know, she's empowered now. She has this tool. She can take this over-the-counter B vitamin. It works better than the antidepressants that she took. And then I was hoping that I'd have the same outcome with all the other patients that had severe, you know, early onset psychiatric stuff and neuropsychiatric. And it, it didn't, you know, but again, I'm waiting for the second patient where I can change their life. And, um, and, but it's been impactful for a number of patients. And you say, what does impactful mean? I would say a really good adjunct to whatever medicines they're taking. Most of my patients uh, are able to do very well when we treat the underlying cause of the neuropsychiatric illness. I don't tell patients to go off psychiatric medicines when they come to see me. A lot of people, 
if they're feeling better, they go off them naturally on their own. Like I'm not anti um, medications to relieve symptoms. I don't want people to suffer, but if we get at the root cause, a lot of times that need evaporates on its own and patients know, they just know, you know, I trust my patients. They know when they need these things and they know when they're, they're able to go off them. Usually. That's very intuitive of you though, to be able to try something new like that and, and something that seems relatively simple, you know, I mean, you know, just increasing vitamin levels, um, to help in, in depression in severe, in a severe case of depression. So, um, you know, hats off to you. I think that's pretty innovative. Well, methylfolate, um, even the absence of homocysteine issues, methylfolate is actually approved as an antidepressant. It's an FDA approved antidepressant. People don't realize there's a drug called Deplin, which is just methylfolate, and you can get it over the counter, and no one hears about it. You know, no. is pushed the other ones, and Deplin is, you know, methylfolate is by far has the least side effects compared to all of them. And uh, actually, I don't know of many side effects. They say it can cause anxiety, but none of my patients have gotten anxiety from it, so I haven't seen side effects. Yeah, I'm a I'm a big believer in taking uh, my bees. Um, pretty regularly. And the, and I notice, I can notice almost immediate improvement um, that way. Uh, thanks for talking about that. I, I wanted to just sort of backtrack for a second, Dana, I wanted to know how it was that you approached Dr. Phillips about writing the book chronic and what steps led up to that, because it's a big endeavor. I'm, 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 I'm in awe that you two have accomplished this together. Thank you so much. So are we. <laughs> it was a massive endeavor, but um, a really worthy one. And we, we both enjoyed the process because we got, well, you know, we, we got to interview some people and just make some wacky phone calls and go, hey, you want to talk to us for our book? And talk to people that from all walks of science that we may not have encountered otherwise. So that was an extremely fun and interesting uh, process. Um, but the way it happened was kind of hilarious and crazy. Very few people ask us this, but I love telling this little story of a patient of Steve's and it was a really dear friend of mine. Um, she, uh, she's an author. She's a best-selling author herself. And she's, uh, really super smart and really super funny and amazing. And her name is Christina Grish. And she called me up one day and she goes, uh, Listen, I was up in the middle of the night and uh, I decided you and Steve are going to write a book. <laughs> I go, no, we're not writing a book. That's crazy. We're not going to, that is like a massive endeavor. I don't even, I'm a songwriter. I write things in three minute bursts and I'm, I'm done. She said, no, you're going to write a book. I said, well, how are we going to do that? She goes, well, I'm going to call a couple agents and I'm going to tell them what I think. And we're going to send some press links. Cause he and I had done some press already together. And, uh, and you're going to get a book deal. And I was like, okay, crazy pants, go for it. And she did all the things. She got us an agent and she got several agents that wanted to sign us. And then there was a bidding war for our book. And it's hilarious to me because being in the music business for so long and being, you know, having a lot of experience in music publishing, um, the, you don't like, it's rare that you kind of just like step into stuff like this. So it really was meant to be. And, um, yeah, I just remember like he was with patients and I texted him. I'm like, so I think we're going to write a book together. He's like, what? <laughs> and he called me and, and, and we were both all in and 
that's how it, that's the real story. It was that's awesome. fantastic. I love that story. That's, 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 if it were all so easy, right? Yeah. But um, it sounds like you just, you know, you guys were in sync the, the whole time. The book is written, like I said, so easy to read and, and there's just no, um, it's just like a great melding of the two um, worlds coming together. Dr. Phillips, I wanted to ask you about the future of Lyme disease and chronic illness. What, what are some exciting advances that you're seeing and in what areas for Lyme? Hmm. You know, I, I'd rather sound like I'm not some like old jaded guy, but the problem <laughs> is that there aren't that many advances. Uh, I wish there were. And, and, you know, there are three NIH funded studies like randomized controlled trials to treat chronic Lyme in over 20 years. It's such an embarrassment. And, you know, we, we know that, that Lyme is more uh, common than HIV plus breast cancer plus now hepatitis C, you know, every year there's more cases of Lyme than those diseases. And think about all the large NIH funding and the many studies that go into those every minute and we're getting nothing. So I don't see major advances. You know, there are drugs that are new that are, um, you know, talked about like docelfram has been a drug that's relatively new to, and some people have used it for Lyme, but I haven't used it because I'm concerned about the toxicity profile. And I've seen some patients say they've gotten amazing benefit. I've seen other people wind up in hospitals on it and yeah. including psychiatric hospitals with, you know, really almost kill themselves on it. So I am concerned about, I have a, I'm an early adopter of things that maybe don't have enough evidence behind it to be, you know, rigorous and academic if they're very, very safe. And I'm a late adopter of things that are dangerous because I view it as something that I have to be, has to be proven that it's worth the risk to me. And that's, I think what I learned in business you know, program before med school. Like I went to a business program before I went to med school. It's all about risk benefit analysis. And then when I get to med school, they use the term and they don't, they don't practice what they preach. It's all about guidelines and everything else. So mm -hmm. I make every decision based on, is it riskier to treat this person? Or is it riskier not to treat this person with medicine X, Y, Z? And um, so in terms of getting back to your question, I'm sorry to, to punt a little bit. Exciting advances, I'm not so sure. Um, well, we're, we're doing a drug. <laughs> What's that? Oh yeah, yeah. So when I, I that's exciting. Yeah, I should talk about that. Um, I, I yeah, like we can tell you about that. So when I was sick, when I was on on my back two years and uh, just laying in bed, I had a lot of time to think, and um, and a lot of time to read, and I came out with a drug concept. And um, when I got well, um, Dana had introduced me to the late Dr. Neil Spector. We became good friends. And Neil invited us down to do a couple of times and we're going back and forth. And when one of the times we were down there, I mentioned the drug to him and he's like, this is amazing. And he put us together with some expert in that field where the drug would be a niche thing. And the guy was like, this is great. You know, it's definitely should work. You should definitely pursue this and look into it. And it's a drug designed for both Bartonella and Lyme. And um, I presented it to the Bay Area Lyme Foundation. It's a great organization. They're probably the most wonderful people. They fund great research. And then they uh, were honored me with their Emerging Leader Award. And it's a scientific grant. And Dane and I uh, founded a little you know, company to develop this into a drug. And we're working with people from Stanford now. And uh, you know, things progress super slowly in this realm, like, like glacial, like glacial. But making progress. And it is very exciting because there aren't any new drugs for Lyme. And this would be something that would be, if it works, you know, safe and effective. Incredible. Um, 
I'm looking forward to hearing more about that. I, I just, um, I was reflecting on a recent conversation I had with my state representatives here in California and an interesting fact, we talk about lack of funding for this disease. Um, do you know for Lyme disease, the typical per patient allotment for research is for vector-borne diseases is $63 yes, per, per patient. However, malaria gets 118000 per person, mm-hmm. and there are only 1,700 cases per year of malaria. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Yeah. West Nile gets 13600 per patient, and they only have 2,600 cases per year. So, I mean, talk about a huge huge delta in between all of all of those people that need need our help so i'm again so glad you're getting the word out there um dana what what would be the most important message that you would like to convey to our listeners regarding lyme disease and chronic illness i don't don't believe the cdc i mean you just said that and my blood boils when you just talked about those numbers that's a scandal and that's a cover-up. And the reason is because it will literally bankrupt the world if Lyme is recognized for what it actually is and what it's actually doing. And it will also bankrupt pharma because there's no money in cures. So these patients are relegated to lifelong immune suppressants like Enbrel and Otesla and lifelong psych drugs. And again, I agree with Dr. Phillips. I'm not against symptomatic relief when you need it, but I'm highly against denying the root cause of these infections of these diseases in order for people to profit off of them for the remainder of somebody's life and make them an annuity and and keep them on the hamster wheel of medicine. I think it's absolutely a crime. And I wanna say I could have been that person you know, I had MS-like symptoms, fibromyalgia, anxiety, depression, severe suicidal ideation. That is all gone when I treated the root cause. That needs to be said. Um, so that's that's one thing, you know, don't go to the CDC for advice about Lyme. It's all wrong and it almost killed me. Uh, number two, I would say that you need to find the right care because most doctors don't know anything about these infections at all, even infectious disease. I went to three, they treat the acute infection, they treat it badly, they undertreat it, they treat it wrongly. And then you end up like me in heart failure six months later, or you end up like Dr. Phillips where you can't walk a couple of months later. So, you know, all these things are possible. I just watched a video last night of Michael J. Fox, who was on David Letterman, um, mm-hmm. 1997, who talked about his Lyme disease and four years later, he has Parkinson's. So we know that the, you know, there's data, we know that these diseases, that these infections cause severe neurologic, uh, physical, uh, multi-systemic disease, and we need to stop denying it. And then in terms of my advice to actual patients who are watching today and who feel hopeless, look at my story, look at Dr. Phillips' story. We are hoping to be a beacon of light for people because both of us made remarkable recoveries in our own ways and we're here to tell the story uh, we wrote this book because we can't possibly feel the one-on-one questions that we both get day in and day out and we put as much in there as we could to help you and that is our earnest wish um, nobody gets rich writing books but we do feel that we can enrich the world by exposing the truth of this and helping patients find the right care so don't give up 
Uh, I like ILADS as uh, ILADS.org if you can't find a doctor to help you. I also think some integrative doctors can be terrific and earnest and they should be, you know, people can educate themselves. Physicians can read this book and should read this book too because a lot of Dr. Phillips secrets and hard one, you know, therapies and, and combination therapies that most doctors don't really know about are in the book and they can help a lot of patients. So I think you're giving me an idea. I'm going to buy a bunch of your books. Here they are for my YouTube channel. This is what it looks like, but I'm going to buy a bunch of books and give them to all the doctors that had no idea what Lyme disease was. I have a message for them and it's two words and I won't say it. <laughs> and Dr. Phillips, what about you? I'd like to ask you the same question. What's most important for you as a doctor to convey to those out there who suffer daily? Well, like Dana said, there's hope could be just around the corner. Um, I didn't find help with my doctors. I wish I did. I saw 25 and I saw, like I said, three rheumatologists, a couple of neurologists. I saw some infectious disease. I saw a bunch of Lyme doctors. And I wouldn't underestimate your own ability to heal once you are on the right path, because our bodies do have tremendous ability to heal. It just takes a nudge. I mean, mm -hmm. there were medicines that failed for me and another medicine failed and another medicine failed. And then I found the right medicine and I miraculously improved. And it really was a miracle. My, my mom came over and saw me walking for the first time in tears and she like broke down in tears and it was really, really emotional. And, you know, these things happen. It's just, it's easy to give up. People always say like, how did you not give up after so many failures of treatment? You know, because what am I gonna do? Spend, spend the rest of my life in bed? I mean, I didn't give up because I refused to give up. And easier said than done. But my big advice, apart from that, would be to keep asking the question, why? Like when the rheumatologist want me, wanted to put me on immunosuppressants and one held my hand and said, we can cure this with immunosuppressant X. And I said, what are we, what are we treating? And she's like, we as rheumatologists don't focus on the cause, we focus on the effect. And if we suppress your symptoms for the rest of your life, we call that a cure. And I was like, well, you know, call it what it, what it really is. You're, you're suppressing symptoms. So... And at great cost, you know, these, mm -hmm. these immunosuppressants increase the risk of cancers, increase risk of heart failure, increase the risk of opportunistic infections like tuberculosis. Plus it's a pain to get needles on a regular basis for the rest of your life and have to worry when everybody coughs on you that you're gonna catch some horrible thing because you're now immunosuppressed. So. Well, not only that, I've heard that if you suppress it for any length of time, if you do dare go off, for a while, it comes it back tenfold or can come back tenfold. No, it does. I mean, they've done studies on it. I mean, you know, the relapse rates for many of them are incredibly high in excess of, you know, 97, 99%. They're not, they don't cure anyone really. Um, and you have to also wonder from a greater context, what happens when we are, when we become, or we have become, because we are now an immune suppressed society and a pandemic rips through, you have to wonder like, what, it, how, what impact did this have on us with COVID? Like I always say that India's got a 10 times better survival rate for COVID than we have. And we have supposedly a better medical system. Part of that is because India embraced, I think, early treatment options, whereas the United States kind of dismisses them. Mm. Um, things like ivermectin, which is a safe old drug that has activity in COVID and over 20 randomized controlled trials. But Another part of it may be related to our incredibly immune suppressed population. And just put it out there. It's not a good thing, pandemics and for just general life to 
to suppress people's, you know, blessing that they were born with. They have this wonderful immune system that keeps them safe all their lives. Let's go and ruin that. You know, it's just such a upside down way of thinking. And um, I think that if I would have agreed to the immune suppressions when I was so sick like that, I mean, one of the rheumatologists said to me, I said, they're so dangerous though. Why would you recommend this? She's like, well, people do die on them. You know, we do have people who die on them, but it does make a lot of people feel better. And I was like, and I, you know, I never say that to my, I mean, knock wood, haven't had any patients die on treatment in 25 years mm -hmm. um, from any side effects of medicines or anything, just people die of old age that I've treated, you know, or things like that. So, sure. anyway. you know, and, and, and so many out there currently right now we're dealing with the pandemic and now we're dealing with vaccinations and people are people in the Lyme community and chronic illness community are paralyzed with fear of, of layering something else on top of everything else that they're dealing with. And many of them are dealing with cardiological problems and neurological problems. And that's just the last place they want to go. Where are they, what else are they supposed to do? You know, so they're, they're really, um, it's really a stressful time out there for our listeners. I agree with you. Um, Dr. Phillips, thank you so much. I, I understand that you're still practicing. Um, how, how can people get in touch with you? Well, my website is stephenphillipsmd.com or, you know, I'm in Wilton. We're in the book. Um, I have two nurse, nurse practitioners who are amazing, Kelly and Caitlin, and our administrator, Deb. We have a naturopath in the office, Dr. Verma. Um, and uh, we have a really, really just nice, happy office. And, uh, you know, we're very mellow. <laughs> That's all I could say. It sounds like you're mellow and you're, uh, you know exactly what to do with, um, with, with chronic illness sufferers. And, and Dana, what about you? Um, how, how can we keep in touch with you? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Dana Parrish. You can go to our Facebook page at The Chronic Book or Instagram The Chronic Book, um, our website, thechronicbook.com. And Dr. Phillips' office is not only just mellow, they're all incredible. I know them very well. I know all of his practitioners. I send doctors, when he, because he can be booked for so long, I send physicians to his nurse practitioners. They're so they're better than any doctor that I saw along my journey. So I just need to say, yeah, they're, wow. they're organized. They call you back. Like it's the best office. I, I don't know where else really to send people half the time because you know, he set the bar a little bit too high. <laughs> <laughs> well, that sounds great. And I'm sure Dr. Phillips, you're doing bit virtual. Um, yes. We're doing virtual. I'm going to start well. seeing, I think patients outside on the, the patio area uh, soon in the From former 300 weather. feet away. He's right. Yes. Oh, How are you feeling? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I'm looking forward to hearing more about your your new newly developing medication poss possibly on the horizon. Mm -hmm. So we'll definitely be following along. And also, you know, this book, um, I love it. You can get it off, I'm sure, their website. You can also get it at thetickchicks.com. It's featured on our um, resources page. And... Guys, thanks so much. I, I could sit here for a lot longer than this, but I know you're busy. So Excellent. thank you for joining us. And uh, we hope to have you back soon. That'd be great. Thank you. We'll be back. Thank you. Thank you.